Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we get to answer your Bible questions. Yes, there is good news, and here are a few verses that might be helpful to you. Here's what you got to know. God loves you anyway. He's with you anyway. So let's kind of unpack this and look at the tenses just a little bit. Oh, that's a good question. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm John Bradshaw, and with me, Eric Flickinger. Thanks for being here. Good to be here, John. If I were to ask you, explain very briefly what Line Upon Line is all about, you would say? Premise is pretty simple. There's a lot of questions that people have about the Bible, and we're here to try to help find Bible answers. So, if you have a question about the Bible, and you would like a Bible answer, you can send that question to Line Upon Line at iiw.org. Again, that's line upon line at iiw.org. That question will come to us, and we will try to help you find a Bible answer for it. Okay, we've got questions today about eternity, about salvation, about studying the Bible. We've got a question coming up soon about the devil. What's our first question? Here's our first question, and this one comes from Rhonda. Thank you, Rhonda, for writing in. Rhonda asks, what did first century Jews look like? A little hard because we can't pull out the phone and look at photographs. There's no illustration uh, in an encyclopedia that was was a first-hand account. Mm. So we're going by what scholars tell us and what we we think based on the historical records that we have. A first-century Jewish male would have been about five feet, seven inches tall, maybe a little shorter. I would have had short, dark hair and a beard, more than likely brown eyes, olive skin, and uh, would not have been wearing ostentatious clothing, would have worn a, a tunic, and it would have been really rather rather simple. Now, I can't tell you too much about the, the, the Jewish females. Um, that, but the feminine version, I think, is what it yeah. is. And, of course, there's going to be some variation in that, just like not everybody who is a 21st century uh, individual looks the same today. There was some variation back then, too, so we can expect that to be the case. Yeah, one thing interesting about Jesus is it says in the book of Isaiah... There was no beauty in him that we should desire him. Mm. So speaking of Jesus himself, and I know the question was not about Jesus, it was more broad, but Jesus didn't stand out in any way as the the guy most likely to be voted homecoming king based on his looks. He was, and I mean respectfully, fairly ordinary looking man, a, a, fairly, a fairly regular Jewish fellow who didn't stand out physically in his time. That's right. And, and what drew people to him was not what he looked like, It was what he said and the life that he lived. Because as people drew near to him, uh, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He wanted everybody who met him to get to know his Father and to fall in love with his Father just as he loved his Father. It wasn't what he wore. It wasn't what he looked like. It was who he was that made the difference. Character. 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 Wendy asks us, when are we taken to heaven... And what happens to the sinners when Jesus comes back? Great question. Thank you, Wendy, for that one. Let's take a look at a few verses here. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is one. And uh, if you would like, you can read 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 55. We won't read all of those right now, but they're all very encouraging verses. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse number 51, Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. 
that change takes place, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or pardon me, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at the return of Christ, when the trumpet sounds, when Jesus returns with the voice of an archangel, and the dead in Christ are raised first, are raised first. When Jesus comes back, that's when mortals put on immortality. That's when the dead, the, the corruptible, the dead have been raised incorruptible. That takes place when Jesus comes back. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Now, this is in a given context, but it describes what happens at that time. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And in Revelation chapter 6, the lost call to the mountains and the rocks, and they call out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? When Jesus comes back, the unsaved are lost, and they are slain by the brightness of his returning. Very good. We have a question here. This one comes from Rosa. Rosa asks, is it better to study the Bible chapter by chapter or to study it by topic? And and before I pitch that to you, just kind of going back to Wendy's question about when people are taken to heaven, what happens when Jesus comes back, the righteous, the wicked? Rosa now asks this question, is it better to study the Bible chapter by chapter, study it by topic? If, for example, Wendy wanted to know more about this question that we just answered for her, what's a good way for her to find more of an answer, an elongated answer, because Rosa's asking us, how do we study the Bible and get the right stuff out of it? You know, one really good thing to do would be to go to uh, itiswritten.study and start doing those Bible studies. They're, they're great. They're engaging. They're solid. They're in-depth. They're accessible. You easily get your arms around them, and you study on through there. You'll soon come to our study about the second coming of Jesus, and that will take you in-depth to get really good answers to that question. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So now on to Rose's question. Is it better to study the Bible chapter by chapter or to study it by topic? Yeah, uh, I think the answer to your question, Rosa, is sure. I think the answer is sure. Now, whatever you do when you study the Bible, you want to study it in context. It's okay to study it by topic. That's 100% okay. But if you do that, what you're going to end up doing is looking at verses out of context. Now, you'll ask us, questions here, just just like I said a moment ago, oh, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that's in a given context. Mm-hmm. It's okay to take a verse out of context because the verse says something clear, but there are pitfalls there. Right. And you've got to be really careful that you don't end up using a verse and applying a verse in the way it was not meant to be applied by the Bible writer. When you are studying the Bible, see, some of us, we make the mistake of saying, I'm studying this to prove my point. But you're not really. You're studying the Bible to find out what God says to find out what the Bible writer had in mind when he wrote what he wrote, you see. Because if you can understand what the Bible writer was getting at, then you'll understand the import and the intent of what's in that passage. So it's okay to study uh, by topic. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, In fact, sometimes we use this verse in the the Bible to explain that, where the the verse that this program's title comes from, uh, studying here a little and there a little, line upon line and precept upon precept. Exactly. That's okay, but never out of context. So if you were to get a concordance or a Bible program of some kind of find out, and say, I want to find out everything the Bible says about death, and you look up all those words related to death and study that, you'd get a very clear picture. I'm wanting to find out what the Bible says about hell or Sabbath or salvation. That's okay. But 
studying by chapter or book of the Bible, that's good too. The answer really is yes, uh, both are better, both are valid. But if we were going to say one thing rather than another, we would remind you that context is king. So however you're studying, study within the context of, of the Bible and try to get at what that Bible writer was saying when the Bible writer said what the Bible writer said. When you line up all of the texts on a given subject, as, as John mentioned a moment ago, and you read through all of them, and again, a concordance is very helpful for this, you get a pretty good idea of what the Bible teaches on that subject. Now, more often than not, you will find a few verses that seem to contradict what the majority has to say. The key in heading in the right direction is not to focus on those few verses that contradict the majority. Look at the majority and say the majority is what the Bible teaches. Now let me study in greater detail, in greater depth, those few verses that don't seem to fit with the rest until you can bring them in line with the rest. Accept what the majority have to say as what the Bible teaches on that subject. Then dig in carefully to those other verses until you can understand them in light of the majority. I'm encouraged that Rose is asking about Bible study at all. Mm. The challenge we have is that most people aren't studying the Bible. Right. And Rosa, we want to affirm you and encourage you to keep on doing that. Question from Pranith. Can Satan know our thoughts? Can someone enter our hearts? Of course, God knows the thoughts and intents of hearts, and the Holy Spirit abides in us. If Satan cannot know our thoughts, how is it possible for him to cause sinful thoughts to tempt us? It's a good question. The answer is really simple, but very important. It's right. Satan cannot read our minds. But if you're a parent and you look at your child, more often than not, if they're about to make a poor decision, you can tell just by looking at them. You can't read their mind, but there are other evidences about them. The look on their face, the way that they look at a certain, where their eyes go, maybe maybe the way that they're standing, lets you know they're probably going to do something that maybe they ought not. Satan's good at reading signs, if you will. Oh, sure. And history. That's right. By now, you know your children well enough to say to them, if you'd like, do you want pistachio ice cream, you know that the answer is going to be yes, no, or yes and no, depending on the child, because you know them. You know what they get up for, and you know what drags them down. Mm-hmm. Satan's been studying human beings for 6,000 years. Right. And, and you know, the Bible says this. The devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He studies this thing. He studies you. He knows you well. You don't need to fear that, because the Bible says in 1 John 4 and verse 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But uh, while Satan cannot read your mind, he's a very, very good student of human behavior, and he knows you well. He, he does, and he knows which buttons to push to get you to do what he wants you to do. That doesn't mean you have to fall prey to him. What it means is you need to cling to Jesus when you sense that temptation coming on and, and say, you know, the Lord rebuke you and grab a hold of Jesus, and he can take care of you. Just because the devil tempts you doesn't mean you have to fall victim to it. Amen. Very important point. Next question. we got a question here from Henry. Henry asks a great question. If the earth is empty of human life during the millennium, then whom does Satan tempt in Revelation 27 and 8? Great question. Oh, yeah. Let's turn this, shall we? Revelation chapter 20. Uh, This is the chapter dealing with the millennium. And uh, we read this. Jesus comes back. The saved are taken, the lost are destroyed. 
There's a thousand year period. That's the millennium. Very clear from the Bible. It says, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So the reason that Satan is loosed, liberated, he has people to tempt now. The holy city, New Jerusalem, has come down from God out of heaven. The lost have been raised. And they're raised because they're going to ultimately confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and they'll be destroyed. So Satan is tempting the unsaved who have been brought back to life. Question, this thing about Gog and Magog. Mm. A lot of people fantasize about this. Gog is, I don't know, and Magog sounds like Moscow. And so this is Russia and Iran. Don't interpret your Bible that way. It's reckless. It's not sound. It's not wise. And it's not accurate. Gog and Magog. These are symbols taken from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, Gog and Magog were the enemies of God. And here the lost, the unsaved are the enemies of God. A very, very clear picture. So these folks have been raised. They're in opposition against God, and it'll be the end for them. God, God is going to raise everybody in the end. He's going to raise the righteous. He's going to raise the wicked. Some to eternal life and some to destruction and damnation. Unfortunately, that's the wicked. Yes, it is. But it doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be me. Salvation is on offer to us. We receive it as a gift from Jesus. If you, ha- if you haven't told him you want that, tell him now. Don't waste a moment. We'll be back with more Line Upon Line from It Is Written in just a moment. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about the study of the Word of God. And we encourage you to be serious about God's Word also. Well, I want to share with you another way that you can dig deeper into the Word of God. And here it is. ItIsWritten.study Go online to ItIsWritten.study and you can access the It Is Written Bible Study Guides. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will walk you through the Bible. It's going to be good for you and it's the sort of thing that you will want to tell somebody else about so that they can dig deeper into the Word of God and come to know the things of the Bible intimately. As you get into the It Is Written online Bible study guides, you'll understand the prophecies of the Bible, the plan of salvation, and more. So don't forget, itiswritten.study. Itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. Thank you once again for sending us your Bible questions. We enjoy answering them. Amen. And we've got a question from Joanne who asks, I believe in keeping the Sabbath. But I'm the only one in my household who does. I don't have a car, so I can't get to a Sabbath-keeping church. Then Joanne says, am I sinning by keeping the Sabbath alone? Well, great question, Joanne. And we are encouraged that you want to get to a Sabbath-keeping church. There are plenty of people out there who have all kinds of opportunity to do that, and they don't take advantage of it. So we're encouraged that you want to get together. The Bible talks about uh, not not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. When it's not possible, it's not possible. But one blessing of the pandemic, if I can use that word in conjunction with pandemic, is that we've realized that even if we can't physically get together, we can still get together virtually. And so many church services over the last year, year and a half have taken place over 
some platform that allows people to get together virtually. Now, that's not the default, sure. but it gives an opportunity. So two things I would say. Number one, remember these words. It is written TV and uh, in the word. So Sabbath morning, go to it is written TV. It is written dot TV online, wherever you can find or wherever you find it is written TV. And you'll be able to join us as we get into a study of the word of God. Second, phone the church. I can't get there because I don't have a car. Can you help me? And someone will say, yes, we will come and get you. We'll pick you up and we will take you to church because we want you to join us in the house of the Lord worshiping. So if you cannot get there, are you sinning? No, of course you're not. God has your heart. You love him and he loves you. He understands your circumstances. There's a great verse in the Psalms where the Bible writer writes, he knows our frame and he remembers we are dust. He knows what we're up against. He understands the limitations of ourselves or our experience. But do what you can. Call the church. Try to get there. but Understand you're okay. Question for you, Eric from Henry. I do not understand why God put an angel to keep out sinful man from the Garden of Eden, yet he allowed Satan in. All right. So I I don't know, uh, Henry, great question. I don't know that really the concern was being in the Garden of Eden per se, being able to walk along the paths and see the shrubbery, as it were. But what was in the Garden of Eden that was of concern was the tree of life. And Adam and Eve were to eat the fruit from the tree of life. They they received their life-giving force, their lifeness. I don't even know what the word to be. How about just life? Life just called life. Sure. They got life from God. But he had them take the fruit of the tree of life on a fairly regular basis. And in the new earth, in the new heaven and the new earth, we're going to have access to the tree of life restored, and it's going to bear fruit every month. So we can expect we're going to be eating it on a regular basis. But when Adam and Eve sinned, he barred them from the tree of life so that they could not access it and therefore be sinful and live forever. Why was it not such a concern for Satan? Well, maybe Satan was not dependent upon the tree. He was created a little differently than Adam and Eve. God saw fit to bar Adam and Eve from the tree. I don't think Satan's going to live forever, though, either. No, I don't. And, and the angel was put at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve out after the fall. And uh, undoubtedly, I don't think Satan was wandering in and out of the Garden of Eden after the fall either. Frankly, he got in before the fall. Question for you. It says 12 manner of fruits mm. on the tree of life. Yep. What do you expect to see on the tree of life? I am expecting that there's going to be something that approximates about a million times better than a mango, if that's possible. Oh, yeah. Mango's about the best I can think of right now. I'm going to make my Filipino and Malaysian and Thai and Singaporean friends happy right now. Indonesian, perhaps. My friends from Vietnam. Mm. Durian will undoubtedly be on the tree of life. If, if durian is on the tree of no life... No question. Will it still have the smell that it has today? Oh, no question. That's a wonderful smell. What draws people to the tree of life. The problem isn't the smell. The problem is with the nose of people who don't like the smell. Ah, there we go. I think kiwi fruit. Do you you think that that the durian is going to be the smell of durian will be a determining factor in who is in the heaven and who is not? Hard to imagine that people who don't appreciate durian uh, uh, are uh, 
fully sanctified yet. Uh, well, we'll have to get there and I see. I think they have some growing left to do. I think kiwi will be on there. Mango, durian, kiwi fruit. Probably uh, some uh, pineapple. Yeah. Pineapple will be on there too. You know, you've had pineapple from the store and it tastes like, tastes like this. Yep. Have you been to one of these countries and you've had fresh pineapple right off the pineapple vine, tree, bush, plant? I went to Hawaii for a weekend and I got there just after everybody else in the group had finished eating the pineapple. That's not good. I smelled it and the smell was pretty good. I was in Papua New Guinea and they said, we have pineapple here. It was like going from watching black and white to color. Mm. Unbelievably good. So if we can have a pineapple from Papua New Guinea on the tree of life, I'm all for it. That'll work. I think somehow it'll be even better than that. When you get it fresh like that, Andrew asks, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Does this mean that he made Pharaoh reject Moses simply so he could show the world how powerful he is? Doesn't that make him God an egomaniac, an egomaniac? Good question, Andrew. That's a thinking question. Very fair question to ask. Let's see what Eric says. You know, often in the Bible, when it says that God did something, what it simply means is he did not prevent something from happening. God does not get into somebody's heart, Pharaoh's heart, your heart, my heart, and muddle around and make us do things. One of the great gifts that God has given us is a free will. He Mm -hmm. gives us choice. He gave that to Moses. He gave it to Pharaoh. He gives it to you. He gives it to me. And he gives it to you. He's not going to take it away from someone. If he did, he would cease to be love. What God did with Pharaoh is he didn't, he didn't zap Pharaoh. He didn't, he didn't say to Moses, hey, hey, watch this. You go down there, but I'll zap him so that he can't do anything. But what God did was he gave Pharaoh light. As God gave Pharaoh light and Pharaoh rejected that light, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. As you said, God will worded in such ways so that it sounds like he did. He's taking responsibility for this. But what God did there was give Pharaoh a thousand good reasons, 10 very, very good reasons why he should acknowledge the God of heaven and surrender to said God of heaven. And Pharaoh wouldn't. He knew. He knew these plagues. It wasn't the wind that brought these things blowing in. He knew when the when the firstborn all died, he knew, he knew. God gave him light, he rejected that light. His heart was hardened. You know, John, it's often been said that the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And that's what happened with, uh, with Pharaoh. He hardened. He didn't soften. Yeah, precisely. Ward writes this. Ward. In the book of Daniel... Nebuchadnezzar has turned into a crazy person and eats grass like an animal. All this because he didn't give God the glory. Interesting. This Mm. sounds a bit like our previous question. Why did that happen if God is love and doesn't force us to love him? What Water is saying is, sounds like force to me. What's going on there? So God gave Nebuchadnezzar, as we mentioned a moment ago, light. He gave Nebuchadnezzar light through the life of Daniel, of Shadrach, of Meshach, of Abednego. And as you read the first three chapters of the book of Daniel, you find that Nebuchadnezzar is impressed by this God of Daniel and his friends. And he's making progress, but he's still a very proud monarch. 
And in, as you look at Daniel chapter 4, incidentally, Daniel chapter 4 was written not by Daniel. It was written by Nebuchadnezzar after this experience that he had. So Nebuchadnezzar is reflecting on this experience and he's saying, in essence, you know what? It was actually a good thing that this happened to me, that I had to go through this. But he looked out over his kingdom and he said, is not this great Babylon that I have built? Daniel had already told him about this this dream, explained this dream that he had had uh, about a, a tree being hewn down and so forth, but a band being placed around it. God was trying to reach Nebuchadnezzar before this experience out in the out in the field to help him to realize that God was the one who had who was the source of all blessing, the source of all life, and Nebuchadnezzar resisted that. God couldn't have done much more. Nebuchadnezzar was a thorough heathen. He saw in chapter 1 of, of, of Daniel the miracle with the health and the mm-hmm. food and so forth. Chapter 2, he answered the or explained the dream. Chapter 3, they went into the fiery furnace, and, and hello, there is one like a, a son of the gods who is with them. He knew the dream in chapter 4, dramatic. What the story is telling us is not that God's an egomaniac. Far from it. God will do whatever he has to do to save you. When Nebuchadnezzar ate grass like an ox, spent seven years living in the wilderness, this wasn't punishment. This wasn't God saying, I'll show you, I'll fix you. This was God saying, what can I do to get through to this man? I want him saved. I want him to understand that his life is on a trajectory that's hopeless right now. He's going to be lost and I don't want that. What a God. God could have said, oh, forget this guy. I've tried and he's just stubborn. Forget him. But he didn't. God said, I'll go the extra mile. I'll do even more to try to reach this guy. You've got to be careful how you apply this and interpret this, but sometimes these things happen today. Mm. Why did I get in a car accident? Well, God allowed it, didn't cause it, allowed it, because he felt like he might get your attention. Why did, you know what, I, I, I met a man one day, he said, I had cancer some years ago. This was in the state of I want to tell you, it was Florida or Texas, Florida maybe. He said, I had cancer, almost died, came to within a hair's breadth of death. I realized my life wasn't right with God. Mm. I gave my heart to Jesus. I've been on fire with the love of God ever since. That wasn't God punishing the man. That wasn't God being an egomaniac. That was God saying, what else can I do to reach this man? Right. See, So in everything like that, let's see it not as a call of God the egomaniac, but God the merciful God doing everything he can to save someone out of love. You know, there's a, a verse at the very tail end of that chapter that I think puts it in context. This is the last thing that Nebuchadnezzar writes in chapter 4 of Daniel. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. So he is thanking God for allowing him to go through that experience because it may, it brought him into a better relationship with him, a and, saving relationship with him. And that's what we want. Some of us keep score here on earth and we say, oh, God is against me. Everything is against me. I, I had a bad life or whatever it is. But how about 
I'm hanging on to Jesus and I have eternity in front of me and God has been doing everything he needed to do to save me. That's a good way to go. Eric, thanks for joining me here good today. To be here, John. Really good. And thank you for joining us. We'd love to hear from you. Email us with your question, lineuponline at iiw.org. With Eric Flickinger, I'm John Bradshaw. This was Line Upon Line from It Is Written.